Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Meeting manipulation, the White House talks to Russia after the JBS hack attack. Amazon.bong, the tech giant ends cannabis testing after revising workplace policy. And Jim Gyrations, Equinox's CEO, discusses the future of fitness. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Coming up on today's show, the latest on the global hamburger hacking. Popular Reddit names like AMC once again send short sellers packing and more factories warn that labor is lacking. And we're lacking conviction too on Wall Street, it seems, after a pretty muted session on Tuesday. Europe still holding near record highs. And Asia, as you can see, a bit of a mixed performance, some weakness across the Hang Seng and Shanghai composite there in China. Not surprising, I think, in tone ahead of Friday's monthly U.S. jobs report that will give us a sense of those hiring challenges that firms are facing. Tuesday's U.S. manufacturing data was strong and orders robust, but labor and part shortages are leading to the longest wait times for delivery since the 1970s. Yes, you heard me right. It's meaning that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is now demanding the jobs jumble be addressed, calling the lack of labor one of the most serious threats for business today. Q, a cannabis concession from Amazon. Workers will no longer face pre-employment drug testing, among other changes. We'll discuss very shortly. And no reprieve for Amazon deliveries or any other driver, for that matter, as U.S. gasoline prices hit their highest level in seven years, too. That OPEC Plus decision to only gradually boost production, fueling further gains today, as you can see. And prices could rise even further if inventories remain tight. Brent crude above $70 a barrel. It's a busy day. As always, let's get to the drivers from pot to productivity. Amazon making a couple of major announcements. It's now saying that it supports the legalization of marijuana in the United States and it won't include it in drug tests for new staff. It's also revising its controversial policy around break times. Claire Sebastian has been pouring over all the details here, Claire. There must be a labour shortage, she says, tongue-in-cheek. Not really. Talk us through the details. Uh, yeah, uh, Julia, certainly Amazon has hired a lot of people in the past year and we've had a lot of uh, attention on their workplace policies. And actually, they've made quite a few changes in the last year. But this is following on uh, from Jeff Bezos's sort of announcement in his shareholder letter uh, in April that, that he wants not only to be Earth's most customer-centric company, but he wants to be Earth's best employer and Earth's safest place to work. So that is why they are revising this controversial policy called Time Off Task, which is a way of measuring the time that each employee in the warehouse spends not logged on to the software they use for that specific task, be it picking, packing, all, all kinds of different jobs uh, in the warehouse. They said, Dave Clark, he's the CEO of Consumer Worldwide for Amazon, he said in a blog post that the original sort of motivation behind that policy was not to surveil or pile pressure on employees, as has been uh, you know, widely reported, uh, but it was to sort of identify problems with the software and, and enable managers to sort of step in before they, they, they get worse. So he said they're going to continue with this policy, but they're revising the amount of time over which they average it out. He didn't say how long that amount of time would be. And he said that they're going to sort of change the way they have conversations around it and focus them more on how we can help. So sort of small tweaks, small changes, but certainly a recognition of how controversial 
that policy is. And as you said as well, the second thing is that they are now going to support the federal uh, decriminalization of marijuana. They won't require it to be part of the, the, the pre-employment drug test for employees for, for most jobs. Uh, and they're supporting the MORE Act that's now uh, in the House of Representatives that would decriminalize uh, marijuana on a federal level, they say, because of the momentum uh, in state laws around this. Yeah, it's going to be treated the same as alcohol for those guys. So it still applies, I guess, if you're in the workplace, you can't be high as a kite or drunk on alcohol, for example. So there are some restrictions, but you're not going to be penalised trying to get the job in the first place. Um, What about, and you said this, it being a safe workplace, because there is some data now that's comparing how safe you are working in an Amazon warehouse relative to other warehouses owned by other businesses. What does that data tell us, Claire? Right. There's a report out this week, Julia, from the Strategic Organizing Center, which is a coalition of of four major labor unions here in the U.S. And they've analyzed data from OSHA, uh, which is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, where where big employers are required to report uh, workplace injuries. And they say that Amazon is is sort of an outlier when it comes to the warehouse industry, that they're seeing a fairly statistically significant uh, sort of increase in, in injuries at Amazon warehouses compared to other places. For example, in 2020, which was actually lower than the previous three years, which they analyzed because of COVID-related safety improvements, they said that that, that in that year, 6.5 injuries per 100 at Amazon warehouses compared to an industry standard overall of four per 100. And there were more serious injuries at Amazon warehouses uh, overall. Now, I've reached out to Amazon for for a comment on this this morning. I haven't heard back yet. But but Jeff Bezos did address this in his shareholder letter. He said that that, musculoskeletal disorders are 40% of the injuries they see in the warehouses. uh, And they're rolling out different safety initiatives to try to deal with this, including sort of a, a wellness program, which teaches employees how to how to sort of prevent these injuries. And, and interestingly, a, a new automated staffing schedule, which, which would allow employees to rotate between different muscle groups to, to avoid sort of repetitive strain injuries. And he says it's working. He says that uh, musculoskeletal disorders decreased by 32% between 2019 and 2020. And as I said, that did show up in the data from this report, that there was a decrease between 2019 and 2020 because of those COVID-related improvements, Julia. Claire, time to stretch please. Raise your arms above your head. Time to stretch. There we go. Claire Bastian, thank you for that. All right, let's move on to China's new central bank digital currency trial. The government handing out more than $6 million in digital wallets to residents in Beijing. It's using a lottery to distribute the cash. Selena Wang has been looking at the details on this for us. Not the first lottery-style handout, Selena, and we should make that point. But of course, now we're very much focused on this in light of China's recent moves against other digital assets, tokens, currencies like Bitcoin, for example. Just start by explaining the lottery handout and what the aim is here. That's right. Well, Julia, China right now is the front runner in this global race to launch a central bank digital currency. And as it ramps up this development, we are seeing more and more of these trial run test projects in the form of these lotteries. Now, in this particular lottery, Beijing residents can use two banking apps to sign up and try and be one of the winners of some 200,000 red packets that each contain about 31 U.S. dollars. Now, these 
this digital currency, however, can only be spent at designated merchants. As of April, however, the central bank authority said that there is no plan yet to launch this nationwide, that we are seeing more and more of these test projects. And we are seeing this expansion come quite aggressively. And these central bank authorities say that it could even be used for foreign athletes and visitors at the Beijing Winter Olympics. Now, some experts have said that China's digital currency could be used to increase the influence of the yuan on an international stage to even eventually break the U.S. dollar's dominance. But central bank authorities have pushed back against that, saying it's not trying to overthrow the U.S. dollar dominance and that this is for domestic use. Julia? Yeah, it's fascinating, though, isn't it? If you start to see countries like Iran, like Russia, like China, for example, all creating these central bank digital currencies, then it does to some degree undermine the prowess of the US dollar, whether you like it or not. Um, Talk to me about the difference, though, and I think this is critical for our viewers to understand the difference between a central bank creating a digital coin like this and some of the other coins that we're talking about on a daily basis right now, the likes of Bitcoin, Dogecoin, for example. And the terminology that we use is centralized or centralized currency versus decentralized currency. Just explain the difference for us, Selena. Well, Julia, a digital yuan is very different from a cryptocurrency. It is a central bank digital currency. It is issued by the central bank. It is not decentralized. In fact, the entire approach of this central bank digital currency runs counter to the original 10 to Bitcoin and some other digital currencies in which the whole point is that no one person or organization can have complete control. Now, the digital yuan has raised significant privacy concerns, but Chinese authorities have said that this is a way to make transactions transactions easier, more secure, and to help those who don't have access to bank accounts. But again, when I speak to experts, they say that this could uh, potentially be enhancing China's central authority and and it would provide unprecedented access and information for the central authorities into where people are and how they're spending their money. Now, while China is already nearly cashless, it is different from what this digital yuan would be since the cashless society in China right now is primarily being transacted on these privately run apps and platforms. So the big question moving forward is how much is this going to strengthen Beijing's surveillance and control, not just of society, but also of the economy? Selena Wang, great job. Thank you so much for that. Okay, let's move on. The White House is blaming a criminal organization based in Russia for a ransomware attack on one of the largest meat processing companies in the world. It's taken down plants in North America and Australia. Alex Markart has the latest from Washington. Alex, the question is, what is the White House going to do about it? At least they're talking to the Russian government about what happened here. Please explain. Yeah, they, they have reached out to the Russian government. The White House said very quickly uh, once uh, this ransomware attack came to light, the Kremlin confirmed that there has been conversation and, and the Russian foreign ministry saying that that has taken place between the U.S. State Department uh, and the Russian embassy here in Washington. Essentially, what the U.S. is telling Russia is these ransomware hackers are operating on your territory and that cannot stand. Uh, Julia, th- this is a plague, really, that is sweeping the globe. Uh, companies and, and uh, entities across all sectors are being affected by these ransomware attacks that show no sign of abating. One cybersecurity expert uh, t- called it a gold rush uh, because it is so lucrative, because these companies are often willing to hand over 
millions of dollars uh, in exchange to, to get their systems back. We just saw that with the Colonial Pipeline uh, here in the United States. Um, so JBS, one of the biggest food companies in the world, one of the biggest meat processors and production companies in the world, uh, says that they were hit uh, by an organized cyber attack that, that, that the U.S. has now said came out of Russia. Um, and all of their meat uh, processing facilities here in the United States were affected. All of their beef production facilities were shut down. Uh, but that is gradually coming back online, according to JBS. Uh, we got a statement from them uh, last night, uh, and I want to read part of that to you. It says, our systems are coming back online. We are not sparing any resources to fight this threat. The vast majority of our beef, pork, poultry, and prepared foods plants will be operational on Wednesday. Julia, that's something that we have seen reflected on Facebook posts. Uh, one of the ways that we were tracking this was that the, the various JBS plants around the company, uh, country um, have been posting on Facebook so that their employees know what's going on. We saw the shutdowns for the last two days. They do appear to be coming back online now. One major question that we don't have an answer to, Julia, is whether a ransom was paid. We know that mm. one was demanded, um, uh, but we do not know whether the company paid anything uh, to get their systems back up and running. Julia? But they're choosing our most vulnerable supply chain, logistic, transportation networks. We saw that with the pipeline just a, a couple of weeks ago. And those kind of vulnerabilities and, and choke points mean hasty payments typically. Um, I think what's that saying? Uh, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice in the space of less than a month, shame on me. Like governments need to do something and do right. something fast. Alex Markart, thank you so much for that. Thank you. OK, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Opposition parties in Israel have just a few hours to reach an agreement on a new government right now. Centrist leader Yair Lapid is working with right-wing nationalist Naftali Bennett to finalize their proposed coalition. If they clinch a deal in time, they could end Benjamin Netanyahu's 12-year run as prime minister. For more, CNN's Haddis Gold joins us live. Haddis, we've been here many times, it seems, before, and uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is also still here. What's the likelihood of this coalition at least forming successfully in the coming hours. Well, Julia, I don't think you can ever, never say never in Israeli politics. And Benjamin Netanyahu is definitely a survivor of, of Israeli politics. He has been prime minister now for 12 years. But this definitely feels as close as perhaps Israel has ever been to seeing the back of Benjamin Netanyahu. But many people here will not believe that he is gone until this new government is actually sworn in. Sources close to the negotiations are telling us that they have made significant pro progress overnight and nearly everything is done. But that official announcement has not yet come. They have until midnight tonight to tell the Israeli president they have been able to form this coalition government. But even even if they make the announcement tonight and make it before the midnight deadline, it is a not a done deal yet. And that's because this government needs to be presented to the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, for a confidence vote. And they have to do that within seven days. And in Israeli politics, Julia, seven days can be an eternity and a lot could change. Netanyahu and his allies could try to convince uh, some defectors and they only need a handful to defect for this coalition to crumble. If something happens to the ceasefire with Hamas, led militants in Gaza, if something happens uh, in, in relation to the Palestinians, 
Palestinians, that could all cause this coalition to crumble. But as it stands right now, it does seem as though this is where we are headed. Uh, the, the people close to the negotiations are feeling uh, rather confident. But again, never say never. We have until midnight tonight to see if they do have the numbers to bring this government together, to bring this coalition. They still have to get it through uh, the Israeli parliament for that confidence vote before they can actually be sworn in. And many people here are holding their breath until that new government, until a potential new prime minister is officially sworn in. Yes. And uh, a kaleidoscope of political opinions and views as well, had us. So even if they can form a coalition government, how long does that last? Thank you very much for that. We shall see. Marine officials are worried that a cargo ship sinking off the coast of Sri Lanka could create an oil spill emergency. The Singaporean vessel was on fire for nearly two weeks before it started sinking. Authorities say it's carrying toxic chemicals as well as hundreds of tons of oil, calling it one of Sri Lanka's worst ecological disasters. Okay, still to come here on First Move, the race to vaccinate the world as new coronavirus variants emerge. We speak with the World Health Organization's chief scientist on the efforts to beat the pandemic. And adapting to the new normal, the executive chairman of Equinox joins to discuss the fitness company's efforts to reinvent the model of fitness. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. The World Health Organization says global coronavirus cases have fallen for a fifth straight week. Cases are down 15% on the previous week, but there are still some hot spots and concerns. Three and a half million new infections occurred in just the last seven days. That was primarily driven by surges in Africa, Latin America, and last year's success story, Southeast Asia. It comes a day after the WHO listed the Chinese vaccine Sinovac for emergency use, the eighth vaccine to receive it. The agency has also been joined by the IMF, the World Bank and the World Trade Organization in a call for wealthy nations to pledge an additional $50 billion towards the global vaccination effort, which so far has been lagging. I'm pleased to say Dr. Somya Swaminathan is the World Health Organization's chief scientist, and she joins us now. Dr. Swaminathan, fantastic to have you on the show. A hugely important call from you and other bodies to say we need more effort to approach vaccine delivery around the world. And clearly we're still lacking. Just talk about the World Health Organization's efforts to boost manufacturing hubs in places all around the world, particularly in places like Africa. Thank you so much, Julia. This is a really important topic. Mm. And you know that today 1.8 billion vaccine doses have been administered around the world. Um, the majority of them, 77% in 10 countries. And most of these countries are those which either manufacture vaccines or which had made advanced purchases. And there's a gap, uh, a huge gap between the low middle income and low income countries and the high income countries in vaccinating. And the call really is based upon the fact that unless people everywhere are protected, this pandemic is not going to come under control. And the way things are going now, it looks like there's a divergent response. There is one part of the world that is thinking about getting back to normal, back to normal economic activity, back to normal life, because a large proportion of the population has received the vaccine. And you can see the case rates dropping, deaths dropping. But there's a huge part of the world that's staring at a very uncertain future. And so we 
the, the four organizations, WHO, the WTO, IMF and World Bank, have jointly put out a call to countries and manufacturers to do the following. The first is for countries to share doses that they have, additional doses, extra doses that they have immediately now, not after six months, with COVAX, so that it can be distributed equitably to countries that, uh, that need them and that have still not vaccinated their healthcare providers. The second uh, call uh, to manufacturers is to, again, prioritize COVAX with any additional supplies, because many manufacturers are scaling up supplies and setting up new uh, facilities and, and making deals with other companies to manufacture their vaccines. So to prioritize COVAX in the additional doses that they hope to manufacture in the coming months. We also make a call to countries to not put in place any kind of export uh, restrictions, especially on raw materials and supply chains, because you need this global supply chain uh, and trade to remain uh, open so that everyone, you know, the manufacturers around the world get the raw materials they need. And fourthly, we hope that we can set up manufacturing uh, production capacity in particularly in areas of the world where there's very limited uh, capacity at the moment so that they can produce vaccines for this pandemic to bring an end to this pandemic, but also be prepared for the future. And for that, we need uh, investments. We need investments from from countries, both to replenish what we need in the ACT Accelerator, so that's uh, the $35 billion, but also for local uh, production capacity in, in places like Africa, on the African continent, uh, and Latin America, which are the areas which are currently uh, underserved. And just to be very clear, I mean, you, you say it and state it very cleanly here. It's a $50 billion investment, but it could regenerate an additional $9 trillion in additional global output by 2025. So there's a vested interest for every nation to look at this and say, look, we provide what we can and more in terms of financials and we'll all exactly. benefit from that. Just very quickly on the scientific point that you mentioned, do nations and the continent of Africa, for example, have the scientific capabilities to manufacture vaccines today to beat COVID-19? Because that's been some of the pushback. Can I just quickly get your expertise on that? Do they have the scientific capabilities to manufacture today? Indeed, you know, there is a lot of uh, capacity in, in Africa and in other parts of the world. We should not underestimate that. But what we're talking about here is new technology. You know, the mRNA mm. platforms that um, have only for the first time, you know, been shown, they, this is the proof of concept, for the first time they've been used uh, as a vaccine on such a large scale. And clearly there's huge potential, both in, in, in the, the speed with which you can actually change the mRNA vaccine composition and potentially its application to other diseases and other infections. So it's very important that this technology platform uh, capacity must be built uh, to, to make vaccines using this platform. And for that, we need the, the, the groups which have this know-how and which have this technology to share not just the IP and the patents, that, but more importantly, the knowledge, the, you know, the, the technology, the, the, the recipe book, uh, so to speak, and actually help to train people who have the basic knowledge uh, and the basic facilities, but they need to be trained on this particular uh, platform technology and in some of the other new technologies so that that can then be quickly uh, scaled up. And the mRNA platform actually has several advantages, apart from the fact that it can be quickly modified. It can also be done in modular settings. You don't have to necessarily build huge factories. 
So it could be done modular and then it can be actually scaled out. So that's what we are hoping to do is to link people who have the technology and know-how and are willing to share with their uh, counterparts in Africa, for example, and working with the African Union, who has a very clear plan uh, forward on this. I think this can be made a reality very quickly. Can I also talk to you about treatments? Because this is another way we, we tackle the spread of this virus. And we do have treatments out there. I've had people say to me, I'm not going to get a vaccine because there are very good treatments out there, but they're restricted, they're in short supply and they're expensive. How much focus is the World Health Organization placing on the need to ramp up supplies and manufacturing of treatments too, in addition to the work that you're doing with vaccines? This is a really good point because everyone does tend to focus on vaccines as a silver bullet, but we have to remember it's going to take time to, to get you know, the, the kind of uh, population level immunity we want. So till then, we, we really need to keep our focus on the public health measures that we all know about, but also on diagnostics, very important, because unless you test, unless you know where your infection is, what your burden is, you can't really plan. So it's really important for many countries are still not testing enough, so they need to scale up diagnostics and treatments. And we've seen that there are a few treatments that are uh, quite uh, useful in uh, moderate and severe disease, like the corticosteroids, which are you know very old drugs, been around for a long time, but can be life-saving when patients get that over-inflammation uh, and lung damage because of that. Some immunomodulatory drugs have been found to be helpful. And we're getting more data now on the monoclonal antibodies, mm. which in a way is doing the work of what vaccines do. Vaccines, once injected into the body, stimulate the body's uh, immune response and antibodies. But if you don't have that vaccine, then giving monoclonal antibodies does that job temporarily. It goes and it fights the virus. It has to be given early in the course of infection, so within the first seven days or so. And uh, it's still expensive because the monoclonal technology, again, is, is not uh, a technology that's widely available. There are not too many manufacturers uh, producing uh, generic right. products, for example. But it is potential of potential of great use. And what's been shown now is that combining two monoclonal antibodies is better because it helps to overcome the effect of uh, mutations and, and the variants and so on. I want to ask you as well, while I have you, about the investigations into the origin of the virus. Clearly, again, very topical. The, the director general said... Uh, and I'll quote him, further studies will be needed in a, in a range of areas that included the laboratory incident hypothesis. Um, I just wondered if there's any updates from the World Health Organization on investigating that theory and whether the World Health Organization feels like it's under any further pressure in light of the announcement from the Biden administration that they're now investigating too. What can you tell us? So as you know, we've just come out of the World Health assembly where all our member states, you know, discussed many issues uh, about the pandemic. They talked about future pandemic preparedness. And this issue was also discussed, as you know, that, uh, you know, the international team that went to China uh, earlier this year has a very detailed report on on the findings uh, and, and also a plan for future. So this was only the phase one. And from the very beginning, uh, everyone knew that you are not going to get uh, to the origins uh, in, in that limited period of time. So it, there's a scope of work, a phase two, and po potentially, you know, future phases of work that need to be done. Looking at uh, all the options that were on the table, so the jump 
from uh, an animal to a human, either through an intermediate uh, animal or directly from a bat, for example. Um, the hypothesis that it could have uh, accidentally leaked from the lab was also on the table. And uh, one needs to go back and look uh, very carefully. There are a number of studies that have been planned and outlined in that report. The director general said very clearly that he will support further investigations into all these hypotheses and that nothing was really off the table. But I think now it's a question of really focusing on the science because, you know, this is how we've got to the bottom of previous uh, outbreaks and, and got to the origin. Uh, it's through very systematic, detailed, scientific interrogation of uh, all the hypotheses on the table. But then you need epidemiological studies. You need to look at data. You need to go back to stored blood samples uh, and, and examine them. So there's a huge uh, amount of work, and I hope that uh, it will get going in the coming weeks. So you welcome that investigation and we focus on the science. Dr. Swaminathan, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time today. The World Health Organization's chief scientist there. Thank you once again. Okay, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Wednesday. Wall Street feeling a little bit like the hit horror film A Quiet Place 2. It's been a muted start to the shortened week, but hey, we're still close to record highs, so nothing too frightful. Although this scary lack of labor across the United States could lead to limited price action until that latest jobs update, the non-farm payroll report, out Friday. In the meantime, U.S. regulators might give Tesla investors a further fright. The Wall Street Journal reporting that the SEC, the regulators, have been up in arms over two Elon Musk tweets that it believes were not properly vetted by Tesla lawyers before being sent out. A violation, perhaps, of the settlement between the SEC and Tesla over previous controversial Musk tweets. I'm not sure he cares. Global economic reopenings might one day lead to a frightful future for the quintessential stay-at-home stock Zoom. But Zoom assures us that it's still Zooming. Paul Monica joins us now. Paul, I mean, the results that they provided were absolutely fantastic. What created a little bit of caution was the fact that they said, look, all this isn't going to last forever. We are going to see a bit of softening, but it's still going to be good. That was my read. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, sales growth was up 200% about in the most recent quarter. And that comes at a time where the work from home environment isn't ending, but it's shifting to a hybrid one. People are starting to go back to the office and that could lead to a decrease in demand for services like Zoom. But that being said, the company still issued new guidance for earnings and revenue that topped Wall Street's forecast. So I don't think investors are that worried. But the big issue though, Zoom stock was up so dramatically last year it's going to be difficult for it to build upon those gains. And that's why shares are just flat so far in 2021, even though they're up slightly today on those earnings. All zoomed out, but still zooming. I have to stop. I just have to shut up now and talk about AMC because this one's really fascinating. The retail army AMC stock. Now AMC turning around and going, hey, guys, we're embracing you. You're going to help us revitalize our brand. Talk me through what Free AMC popcorn. announced today. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to see AMC so directly embrace that Reddit crowd of retail investors. So they have this new program where they will be giving AMC retail investors things like free popcorn and other you know, perks that they can get once, you know, they, you know, are re reopening even more theaters. 
And that's good news. And AMC stock is rising yet again. But here's what's troubling. Goldman Sachs has a more sobering view about the run-up in movie theater stocks. They downgraded AMC rivals Cinemark and IMAX to a sell this morning because even though people are going back to the theaters, I saw Quiet Place 2 over the weekend, I think this is all built into the stock prices already. Yeah, let's hope that they're uh, still eating the popcorn, not throwing the popcorn, quite frankly, if the share price sinks once again. Interesting, interesting business model. Yes, yes. I mean, clearly, yep, no, 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 it's fine. I was just going to try and joke that they're throwing the popcorn at short sellers who are the ones who uh, are really feeling all the pain from AMC stock continuing this meteoric rise. Yeah, for now. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. Next time I'll bring my popcorn and just shove it in my mouth and stop talking for a change. From the big screen to the HBO Max of fitness quote, that's how luxury fitness brand Equinox now sees itself. After reinventing its business model during the pandemic, once known for eucalyptus towels and lavish facilities, Equinox is now embracing tech to give members what it calls a tribrid experience, offering workouts at its gyms, outdoors or at home via an app. And the executive chairman of Equinox, Harvey Spivak, joins us now. Harvey, fantastic to have you on the show. Talk to me about the new business model. How many of your old members are back in the gyms using them traditionally versus using this tribrid model? Well, um, thanks for having me back, Julia. And hopefully not too many of them are eating popcorn. Um, but I, I, I would say it, it's fascinating what's happening, particularly since we went mask free. And I'm going to read you a quote that I got last night, a text I got from a friend of mine who's based in London, who's in the fashion community that said, Mask-free Equinox is my favorite indicator of the world's recovery. Uh, and that's exactly what's happening. So what, what, what we're seeing is a huge surge in demand for our, our offering physically as well as digitally. And so we believe from a vision perspective that our consumer who we cater to is going to want us both physically and digitally because they've moved effectively to a no-days mindset no days off mindset, which is consistent with, you know, Equinox's positioning as uh, delivering and being the authority in high performance living. From a physical perspective, since we in the CDC in the U.S. announced uh, no more masks, obviously further guided by local government, we've seen a huge surge in demand. We've seen it through uh, check-ins at Equinox. We've seen it through ridership at SoulCycle. We've seen it through membership sales at Equinox. We've seen it in London where 75%, almost 80% of uh, check-ins are, are back to pre-COVID levels. So just to put some stats out there um, yeah. to, to bring this to life further, on the Equinox side, we had two of our three biggest membership sales days uh, in, in May since COVID started. So two of our biggest days in 14 months. We've seen week over week sales in New York City up 35%. We've seen record check-ins uh, in the 14 months. Soul cycle um, wait lists for classes, uh, ridership up 15% month over month between from April to May, um, largely driven by no masks. Uh, we've also seen that ridership up almost 50% since January. So all of this is, is clearly indicating, we use the word rebound, but our members, our community are eager to get back together. They're eager to get back together in real life. They're eager to be in front of their favorite instructors, their favorite personal trainer. They're eager to do it together. They're eager for the Equinox experience or the Soul Cycle 
um, I get experience. It. <laughs> and so they're, they're back. I, I'm one of them. How much is the business still down, though, overall? I mean, I get the recovery story and it's great to hear, but how much is the business still down? And to your point, I think, about this tribrid model, and I do think it works. You don't take a day off, but some of it you'll do from home, perhaps. You'll do it outdoors versus physically being in the building. What is that split going to be, do you think, post-pandemic? 50-50? Maybe more? No, I, 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 I think it, it's still, you know, we're, we're almost akin to a live concert or eating at your favorite restaurant. We've gotten used to uh, takeout or delivery, but we really want to go in, in, in person and do it in, in real life. So we, we believe the vast majority um, of our workouts will be in real life, but people do want the digital complement. They want to be able to move back and forth seamlessly. They want to do it in a personalized way. Um, and that's our path forward, and that's how we think it'll occur. So even if you look at retail, where I think the stats are something like 75% of all retail sales still happen in real life despite yeah. the surge in e-commerce, I think that 75% will be much higher um, for a business like ours. Talk to me about hiring, because it's one of the big discussions in the United States now, the challenge of, of hiring people or having to pay them more, unfortunately, slash fortunately for them. Harvey, what's your experience of this? So far, we've, we've been pretty fortunate. I mean, we are concerned about it, but we've been pretty fortunate. So roughly 90% of our employees, um, some of which we had to put on furlough, have come back um, since we've um, gone to a, a full opening um, offering, whether it be Equinox um, or Blink Brand and Seoul is starting to ramp up there. Um, but we are, we are concerned about it. We see a little bit of friction, but because what we do is so unique to the marketplace and so many of the individuals that we'd want to hire want to live and be part of a healthy lifestyle and do something for a purpose that's somewhat mitigating some of the issues in the labor market for us so the bottom line message here is that fitness is coming back you have a differentiated product and you seem pretty confident i think about the next three to six months in terms of recovery uh, feeling very, very, I, I would use the word optimistic, if, if not confident. Um, when you had me on last, I, I think I was pretty optimistic then that people would come back. You were. I'm just surprised <laughs> at how fast they're coming back. They really, people are very excited. Yeah, you called it. I was a little bit more skeptical. You were correct. I, I stunned corrected. Harvey, great to have you on. Thank you very much for updating us. And, uh, Thank you for having me today, as always. Harvey's feedback there. Thank you. Okay, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe. I'll see you tomorrow. And Marketplace Asia is up next.